the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Tuesday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. It's 4 o'clock. You're listening to AM 630, The Word. That means we're all in the right place. This is a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about church, questions about anything going on in your life. All you have to do is pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app and as always if you are driving in your car the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer hey we don't have um, anything going on on Tuesday so let's get right to the questions that have been sent in while we await your phone calls Uh, this first one is from anonymous anonymous Not just anonymous, but anonymous, anonymous. And the question is this, Pastor Ron, if Jesus knows we're not perfect, why did he say we must be perfect in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48? It seems rather unfair, or am I understanding this incorrectly? Uh, Anonymous, anonymous, you're understanding it incorrectly. And uh, it's it's a mistake that a lot of people make, especially when they're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, which is, of course, Jesus' message from Matthew chapter 5, 6, and most of chapter 7. Um, That's when Jesus is simply saying, here's how good you have to be if you want to go to heaven without believing in me. Now, the whole premise of the the Sermon on the Mount starts with the Beatitudes, and then Jesus goes into this impossible standard. He says, you have heard that it was said, and then he repeats the law, but I say unto you, and then he goes behind the letter of the law, directly into the spirit of the law, and he's saying, basically, this is the intent of God. So you want fellowship with God? then you have to be perfect. Now, one of the things, Anonymous, that we've got to understand is that God is perfect. He's holy. And he can't fellowship with any unholiness at all. And and so Jesus is saying, okay, this is how good you have to be. Now, remember, this is a Jewish message. He's speaking to Jews who believe that by having the law, they're already okay with God, that their concept of heaven, they're going to be fine. And Jesus is simply saying, no, I'm here, and I'm going to raise the bar a little bit. It's not enough just not to commit adultery. I say unto you, if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery. And then he sums that whole thing up by by going into Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, saying, here's the way you can get to heaven without believing in me. Be ye perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, this has caused a lot of frustration for people, Anonymous, because they think, well, nobody's perfect. And then like you, they would say it can seem really unfair, like Jesus expects too much from us. But you see, that's why he came. 
And that's why he died, so that his perfection or his righteousness could be freely transferred to you and to me. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, um, He who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin, he took your sin and mine upon him, that we might become the perfection of God. And so practically speaking, Anonymous, if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, if you're born again, you are perfect positionally. Now, you and I know that we're not perfect Practically, we're still working that out. In fact, the Apostle Paul will say in the second chapter of Philippians that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, not work for our salvation. We've been given that freely, but to work it out. The time from the moment we're born again until the time that we're with Jesus in heaven, we are working out our salvation. And we can do that because Jesus has given us his perfection. And so that's what he means. He's challenging the legalists. He's challenging the religious leaders and the teachers of the law. And he's simply saying, if you think that by having the law, you possess eternal life, here's the new standard. You have to be perfect. And of course, they didn't. And we know how that all turned out. So anonymous, anonymous, that's what it means. It doesn't mean that we can be perfect Here's what I want you to understand, and I want everybody in the audience to understand. Rather than being frustrated because we can't be perfect, the Apostle Paul says, Jesus also says, that we should aim for perfection. Every day we should want to be perfect. Now, when we're not perfect, and you won't be, when we're not perfect, then rather than do guilt and rather than give up, well, what's the use? What's the point in trying? I try and I try and I still mess up. Instead of that, we rejoice at the grace of God given to us every day. Paul, writing to Titus, says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It, the grace of God, teaches us to say no to all unrighteousness. That's Titus 2, verse 11. And so every day when you mess up, you say, oh, Lord, I was aiming for perfection and I messed up. Please forgive me. Let's try again. So it shouldn't frustrate you. You shouldn't become impatient with yourself. You simply say, Lord, I hate my sin. I don't want to do it anymore. So please, Jesus, fill me afresh with your spirit. And you know what, Anonymous, the very best thing about walking with the Lord is that every morning is a brand new start. You know what the truth is? This is for everybody in the audience. People, we are a lot harder on ourselves than Jesus ever intended for us to be. We mess up and we beat ourselves up and then the devil heaps all kinds of condemnation. Jesus simply saying, just come to me. Tell me you're sorry. Let's start over again. And he'll do that if you give him that opportunity to do so. Thank you very, very much. Uh, I'm told I've got a phone call, but I don't see anybody on the line. If I have a phone call, we got uh, Cindy on line one, I guess. Cindy, if you're there, welcome to the program. I'm here, Pastor Ron. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. I wondered if you'd kind of explain what the Iranians in Iran, what, what their problem is. I I can't figure out. Well, one, I'm wondering, are they in the Old Testament or where did they come from? And how is it that they hate everybody on the planet but themselves? They <laughs> They hate the Jews. They hate us. They hate Jesus, obviously. And I just can't quite piece together what happened to those people. My father-in-law said that there's a lot of um, lead in their in their land, so it gets in the water, so it makes them mentally ill. So I don't know how how you know true that is, but that was his his reasoning. So, anyways, if you kind of put in perspective uh, where they came from and what their problem is, and and who do they believe in. So thank you. I'll listen on the radio. Bye. Thank you. Uh, A couple of things. One, the whole idea with lead in the land is silliness. Don't get caught up in those kind of things. You know what's interesting to me? Lucifer, the angel, perhaps the most beautiful angel ever created by God, the equal to Michael, the archangel. There was no lead in heaven, and he got crazy. He got insane because sin is insane. 
We try to find reason in the insanity of sin, and there's no reason. Insanity defies reason. So it's really important that you understand that anybody who turns away from God is going to be insane with sin. So that's important we understand it. Now, yes, Iran is in the Bible. In fact, um, uh, Persia, if, if, if the, the Medes and the Persians, uh, they defeated the Babylonians and took control. But, but it was the Persian, Cyrus, who allowed uh, the, the Jews to go back. He was very favorably disposed to the Jews. But here's what happens over centuries and centuries and centuries, centuries. Um, when you're rebelling against God, sin gets deeper and deeper and more and more ingrained. Now, they are Muslims, and they are at war with the rest of the Muslim world. So Iran, backed by Russia, Iran who hates the United States. Now, Cindy, you're old enough, I know you, and you're old enough, like I am, to remember when uh, Persia was a, an ally of the United States. The Shah of Iran uh, was a big supporter of the United States, the United States, an ally of, of Persia. But then the religious zealots took over. Um, um, Khomeini and others, and now there's been a long line. Uh, and when religion, especially a false religion, uh, takes over a land, well, then it's demonic and what you see coming from Iran is demonic. They are like the rest of the Arab world. They're committed to wiping Israel off the face of the map. Um, they will none of them be content until Israel is no longer uh, a presence in the Middle East. Um, so I, Iran is simply uh, an enemy of God. And again, the longer you rebel against God, the... Excuse me. The longer you rebel against God, the more and more insane you get. This isn't about politics. This is about the devil's hatred for Israel, the devil's hatred for Jewish people. Um, the devil has tried from the beginning to wipe them out. You remember in the book of Esther, uh, that was the closest uh, that, that the devil ever came to in, through, through evil Haman, the closest the devil ever came to exterminating the Jews. Um, later in history, when it was uh, Adolf Hitler, who was trying to rid the earth of the Jews and exterminated more than six million Jews. Um, that was demonic. And whenever you see anti-Semitism, the hatred of Israel, the hatred of Jews, it is always demonic. And that's one of the things, Cindy, that makes uh, the, the attitudes in our current um, culture here in the United States so troubling is that we see that demonic presence on our college campuses and marching through the streets of our cities. I don't know if anybody caught it, and I'm going to go off on this for a little bit, so please uh, um, give me a little bit of grace. Uh, I don't know if you caught it, but uh, at the Michigan-Michigan State football game this past weekend, uh, Michigan State, um, somebody um, who is pro-Palestinian, um, um, chanting the same kinds of of, of um, chants that that they do in uh, that Hamas does from the sea to the river, or from I'm sorry, from the river to the sea, meaning push Israel from the river, um, that's the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. Um, it's to wipe them out. Uh, at the end of a presentation they made, there was a. a a pro-Palestinian presentation on this big, huge scoreboard. And at the end of it, not for a long time, but long enough, everybody saw it, um, Adolf Hitler appeared on that screen. Now, when a bunch of right-wing white guys say anything about Adolf Hitler, it's racism, it's hatred, it's, it's the, the militant right... Uh, but this is the left, the militant left. And on national television, on a college campus, Adolf Hitler was presented in a positive light. Now, they've suspended the person who did it, and uh, I, I can promise you there won't be anything happen as a result of this because the left can kind of do what it wants. But all of this, Cindy, is just... Hatred 
and it is demonic. And I'll go one step farther and then I'll be quiet for everybody out there. All prejudice is demonic. It's the enemy trying to divide people against themselves. And Christians, we simply cannot be prejudiced. We cannot hold any hatred or unforgiveness toward any group of people, period, ever. Now, here's what that means, except Jesus coming back. But but should the Lord tarry, it means we have to be willing to extend forgiveness to these people. Should they repent and ask for it? Imagine what kind of a revival could be started. But we cannot fall in the trap of hating people who hate us. Jesus said something, I am sure, about loving your enemies. So, Cindy, thanks very much for that. I appreciate it uh, a great deal. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Jaime. And if it's a girl, it's Jamie. But I don't know for sure because I've just got the letters. And the question is, if drinking is sin, like you say, then why did Jesus make wine at the wedding? I've heard some say the wine was watered down back then, but I've also heard that wine, the wine could have been more concentrated before, and I'm assuming the before is when Jesus made it. A couple of things here, uh, Jaime or Jamie. Um, I never said that drinking is a sin. Uh, I have said, I wish the Bible said that drinking alcohol was a sin. But it doesn't. Drunkenness is a sin. It always has been and always will be. Moderate drinking is not a sin. Now, having said that, the reason somebody like me says, I wish it was a sin, I wish I could tell everybody not to drink or else, uh, I can't do that because the Bible doesn't do it. But I say those things out of my own experience because I've dealt with over my 28 plus years here with so many lives that have been completely ruined by alcohol completely devastated. I've seen families broken up. I've seen marriages um, um, disintegrate because of alcohol abuse. And we Americans are not moderate people. We do things to extremes, and that's exactly why alcohol causes so much difficulty. So moderate drinking is not a sin. Paul said all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. I think any drinking of alcohol falls into that category. We should do only that which brings us closer to Jesus. But the reality is, is drinking is real. It's a problem in the world. Now, why did Jesus make wine at the wedding? It was a wedding. And the the banquet master and the uh, father of the bride would have been embarrassed had the wine run out. Something we also need to understand is that the water in the ancient world was not good. It wasn't healthy to drink. Later, Paul will tell Timothy, because of your frequent illnesses and your weak stomach, drink some wine. So it was different. Now, there's no doubt that the wine was far less um, um, potent in terms of alcohol content than the, than the, the, the wine or the alcohol that we drink now. But it was also, can you imagine? Now, I've never had to drink wine. I hate it, the smell of it, anything. But can you imagine what Jesus' wine must have tasted like? The banquet master said, you know, we give the good wine um, um, only at the beginning. And then when, when everybody's drunk, we substitute the cheap wine. But you saved the best for last. Jesus was drawing a picture of the new wine of the gospel of grace. So that's exactly what he was doing. Again, there's nothing inherently wrong about wine. It's what we do with it. And so there was no sin. That's to miss the point. This was the inaugural miracle that that sort of kicked off Jesus' ministry on the earth. Uh, and um, it was it was his time. The father said, go, and that's exactly what he did. And it was his way of, in a celebratory fashion, uh, introducing a, a new wine, 
an absolutely pure and beautiful wine. Jesus will later say, you know, you don't put new wine in old wine skin. If you do that, the the fermenting wine will cause the old wine skin to burst. No, you put new wine in a new wine skin. And what he was saying is the law. I'm here to fulfill the law and then cancel the law that opposes you. I'm here to fulfill the law and set you free from guilt and condemnation. That's the new wineskin. Jesus was simply saying, that's the new wineskin. So whenever we look at John chapter 2, and we get carried away with the wine and the alcohol question, that, Jamie or Jaime, is when we have sort of lost our perspective on the message that Jesus is trying to communicate. Good question. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question. This one is from Greg. He says, Pastor Ron, how is it possible to do greater works than Jesus? Um, Greg, it's not possible to do greater works in terms of the quality of the work. Now, when Jesus said that to his disciples, now remember, he's looking at these 12 men. And he's saying, I tell you the truth, it's good that I go away because when I go away, the Holy Spirit is going to come. And you've seen me do some pretty good stuff, but I tell you, you will do even greater works than I have done. And what he's doing, Greg, is he's speaking about quality versus quantity. Now, remember, at Jesus' death, he left 120 or so followers on the first day of the church, the day of Pentecost. 3,000 men plus their families will enter the kingdom of heaven. 3,000, a few days later, another 5,000 men plus their families. So instantly, the greater works in terms of quantity have already begun. And of course, Jesus would send the gospel all over the world and we're still doing those greater works, Greg, because uh, people are getting saved right up until the end. And, of course, uh, multiplied billions and billions of people over the nearly 2,000 years uh, since Jesus left us um, have been saved. And no no single man has ever impacted the world to the anywhere close to the degree that Jesus has. And it didn't happen until he left. So here's what he's saying to him. Don't worry. You've seen me do some neat things, but wait till you see what you do. And if you remember, Greg, the disciples uh, who would become apostles, they got a little picture of that. Jesus sent them out two by two. He sent them out two by two and um, gave them authority to cast out demons, gave them the authority or the power to heal all manners of disease. And that was just a taste. Don't worry, the things that you've seen me do, uh, you're going to be doing more things. And they're going to be greater in quantity, not greater in quality. I mean, we can't walk on water. We can't go down to uh, the river and pull out a fish and pull a gold coin from the fish's mouth. We can't do those things. But the impact of being sent by the Lord, by the Church of Jesus Christ, being empowered by the Holy Spirit is that multiplied billions and billions and billions of people are going to find their way into the kingdom of God. Jesus 120, the Christian church, multiplied billions and billions of people. Those are the greater works that are being spoken of. So, Greg, I hope that makes sense to you. You know, one of the things, and we live in a in a culture where there's a lot of false teaching and prosperity teaching about uh, all these things, Um, uh, they say, no, we can do greater works. You can walk on water and you can do miracles. And that's not at all what Jesus had in view. So thank you very, very much. Okay, I'm inside three minutes now. So let me get a quick question that I can do. Here's one from Annette. She says, it makes no sense that Jesus could be both God and man. I want to be able to understand what I believe. And that seems to be too much. Annette there's no way we can understand. This is called, by the way, the kenosis of God. Um, the, 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 the incarnation of Jesus, he had two distinct natures. He inherited his human nature from Mary. And, of course, his father was God. So he inherited 
always had his divine nature, and those two natures became one. That's the magnificence of the Incarnation. And so those are one of those things that we can, how can you be 100% of, of two things? That sounds to us like 200%. Uh, but the answer is, the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus was man. He, he veiled his deity uh, as he was walking on the earth. He did miracles only at the, the direction of his Father in heaven and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove at his baptism. Um, so we, we understand, yes, he was God, but Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, says he considered equality with God not something to be held to. So when he emptied himself of his divinity, doesn't mean he stopped being God. He's, he was always God. God can't be, can't be stopped. Um, and yet he didn't use that divinity to, to accomplish the will of his Father here on earth. He faced every trial in that, just like you and just like me. He did it as a human, being led by and empowered by the Spirit of God. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in our program today, 340-9585. We'd love your live calls and questions. Toll free, 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Back to the second half of our program, 340-9585. For your live calls and questions, we would love to hear from you. Here is a question that was just called in uh, to the studio anonymously. How is the devil able to tempt so many people at once and are angels that powerful? Um, Anonymous, there's a lot of different levels and, and, and degrees of power among the angels, both the good angels and the fallen angels. Um, there are angels that are really, really powerful. Now, the, the way the devil is able to tempt us is because we give him so much of an opening to do so. You know, he sees us, the devil. Now, by the way, there's, there's I, I doubt very many of us are ever tempted directly by Satan or Lucifer himself. But there are demons all over. I mean, uh, Satan commands a legion of of demons or legions, plural of demons. And they're all uh, trying to tempt us. And they can tempt us because we give them the opportunity. Just sort of off the context of your question, um, sexual immorality. Paul says when we sin against, uh, all of the sins are committed outside our body. But when we sin sexually, we sin against our own body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. The implication clearly there is that when we sin sexually, we're really opening a door for Satan to come in and pound us. When we uh, do things like take drugs or get drunk, anything that alters our mind uh, or our even our mindset, we're giving him an opportunity to beat us up. I tell our church here all the time that that some of us are like those old clowns. You know, when when I was a little kid, my mom and dad for Christmas once got me a clown. You could punch a clown; it keeps coming back up. Well, that's what Satan does. We're we're the clown, and he keeps punching us because we give him the opportunity to do so. So, yes, angels are powerful, but we actually assist them in the temptation. So, the devil is tempting us. He's the accuser of the brethren. Um, night and day accuses us before the throne of God. But remember, there's all kinds of other demons out there uh, doing the tempting. One other comment about this, Anonymous, is that the devil is the master psychologist uh, in the history of our world. Uh, I mean, he studies us. He's He knows what our proclivities are, and he's always going to do that. Thank God for 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It says this, 
No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. It doesn't say that Pastor Ron's faithful or Anonymous is faithful. It says God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will always provide a way out. In other words, we don't have to give in to the temptation. We used to be controlled by sin, but in Christ we no longer are. What that means is that we can be delivered from temptation. We can overcome, even overwhelm temptation. Anytime it comes, all we have to do is first provide the desire to do that. Lord, I don't want to give in. I don't want to give in. And then the power of the Holy Spirit will come over you. And you'll be able to walk away from that temptation victorious. And let me tell you something. When you learn to do that, when you really believe what 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, I promise you it will change your life. Because you're no longer fighting the enemy from defeat. You're fighting the enemy from a position of absolute victory. And all we have to do is have the faith to believe that. So, yeah, angels are that powerful. Believe me, every time you see an angel, especially the real powerful ones in scriptures, people are undone. What did Isaiah say? Say, I have seen the Lord and the angels, and I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Well, when you see one of God's holy angels, Daniel, was sick just from the presence of an angel. So they are that powerful, and the fallen angels, of course, the demons, are not only powerful, but they are also completely and totally evil. Here is a question. This one is from April. It says, Hi, Pastor On. Is there any significance of fasting to get closer to Jesus? My church is wanting all of us to do a 40-day fast. I read that if someone is fasting, we're not supposed to let other people know. Interesting and great observation. Then she continues, It seems confusing. People are talking about the Daniel fast at my church. Jesus mentions a lot about fasting in the New Testament. Uh, Fasting, some is fasting something all Christians need to be doing. And when do we fast? Or when do we need to fast? A couple of things. Fasting... A Jewish concept. Um, fasting was part of some of the Jewish religious rituals, some of the festivals. Uh, and it wasn't always food that they fasted, by the way. Um, they would fast from sex. They would fast uh, from putting on oils on their skin. Uh, they would fast, some of them, from bathing. Uh, we're teaching Leviticus on Wednesday nights, and they're fasting from bathing. I mean, imagine that. Yuck. Who wants to go in the presence of the Lord? Dirty. But there's all kinds of fasts. So let me say unequivocally that fasting, of course, is a biblical concept. But if you want to know what God's view of fasting is, April, Isaiah chapter 58 is the authoritative chapter in the Bible about fasting from God's perspective. Now, here's what we do. We say, okay, Lord, I really want you to answer this prayer, so I'm going to fast. I'm going to go hungry and try to make you answer my prayers. That is an improper motive. James says you have not because you ask not or because you ask with the wrong motive. And that's not a right motive. We don't need to go hungry to get God's attention. Now, when you're talking about your church, and I have no idea what church it is. I'm happy that you didn't mention it. But when you get churches talking about uh, doing the Daniel fast, it's probably a church that leans toward the prosperity gospel uh, or or the, the, the name it and claim it health gospels. Uh, and, and it's just bad teaching. It's bad teaching. Jesus declared all foods clean. We have it two times in our New Testament. And so the Daniel fast really has no value. Now, would we be healthier if we ate food that wasn't processed? If we didn't go to McDonald's or Burger King to have it our way, of course we would. But the idea of going hungry to get Jesus to answer our prayers is completely antithetical to what the Scripture tells us about who the Lord is and what He wants for us. So should we fast? Sometimes. 
but make sure that it's spirit-led and not pastor-led. You know, if your church is saying, we want everybody going to 40-day fast, that's irresponsible. We're messing with people's health, and certainly that fast isn't going to get anybody closer to the Lord. So when do you need to fast? When the Spirit leads. It doesn't have to be something dramatic. It certainly doesn't need to be for 40 days. And this is one of those areas, April, where we need to let the Lord lead by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he'll tell you. Now, if we fast, what fasting symbolizes, and again, please read several times, it's not that long a chapter, Isaiah 58. Because when we are fasting, we're simply saying, Lord, I'm willing to deny my flesh in order to get closer to you. Lord, I really have a, a, a question I need the answer to. And I'm willing to deny my flesh, to deny my appetites, my physical appetites. I'm willing to do that uh, in the pursuit of an answer for your will, not my will to be done. And if we understand that, then our hearts are fine. Honestly, April, I'm not a fan of fasting. Uh, Jesus fasted in our place. Um, When we're hanging out with Jesus... Um, we're going to hear the answers to our prayers. And biblically speaking, under the new covenant, there is nothing about fasting that moves the heart of God. So I hope that makes sense to you. We forget sometimes just how Jewish Jesus' ministry was, and he was focused on the law, and things changed when Jesus canceled the old code that was against us. So I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question without a name at all. Um, He says, I have an issue, or he or she says, I have an issue with two particular people in my life because they hurt me and my family badly. I have forgiven them and no longer hate them or harbor any ill will toward them like I did before. But yesterday their names came up and I was suddenly filled with rage. I don't want to be around them. Is that wrong to not want to be around them? Should I keep my family away if the kids want to go see them? Um, You know, what, what you've just described is that you are a human. And when you were suddenly filled with rage, when their names came up, makes you like everybody else. Now, here's how you deal with it. Taking those thoughts captive, making them obedient to Christ. You simply say, when that rage comes in, you simply say, Lord, you know, and I know I've already forgiven them. So Jesus, this rage, these horrible thoughts that are coming into my head, I give them to you. And I'm simply not going to entertain them. This is a spiritual attack. And the enemy wants you to sin in your anger, and instead you can prove that your anger is righteous anger by surrendering that anger to the Lord. He paid the price for the the, the pain you suffered. And all you have to do is take that thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Now let me also say this, because I think sometimes we have an inappropriate concept of what forgiveness is. Forgiveness. Where to forgive as Jesus forgave us? Well, there's a couple of things that had to happen before Jesus forgave us. We had to ask for forgiveness. We had to acknowledge our wrongdoing, and we had to ask for forgiveness. So because we were asked for forgiveness, then we're obligated to extend that forgiveness. Now, that doesn't mean that trust is immediately restored. It doesn't mean that the pain of what they did to you is suddenly going to go away doesn't mean that you're going to go out and and have a campfire marshmallow roast with them. It just means that you're willing to forgive them and you're no longer bound by that unforgiveness or by that hatred. And Anonymous, everybody, everybody in this world has dealt with exactly the same thing you have. There was a man I hated so much and God just asked me to keep praying for him. And when I kept praying for him one day... I realized that I actually saw one of his daughters in church. And and this goes back way before I came to San Antonio. I'm a new believer. This was the lesson God wanted to teach me. I saw her in church. I was shocked that she was there. But when I saw her, 
I knew for the first time that now I really wanted her and that family to be in heaven. And that's when I knew I was free. So don't doubt what you've already done. Don't doubt that you want them in heaven. But that doesn't mean you've got to hang around them. And especially if they haven't asked for forgiveness, they haven't acknowledged wrongdoing, all you can do is be willing to extend it when they ask. And um, wanting to be around people who've hurt you badly is unnatural. So, no, should you keep your family away? Uh, If the kids want to go see them, it depends on what they're going to be communicating to your kids. You know, are they living ungodly lifestyles? If they're family members or relatives, if kids want to go see them, uh, it might be a wonderful way to demonstrate what forgiveness is really all about. It would depend a lot on whether or not your kids know anything at all about what they did to you. But don't feel bad. Don't get desperate or this is just an attack from the enemy and greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So I hope that answers your question. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Emily. She says, I have many questions about trusting the Bible. I heard you once say that you had the same experience. What convinced you? Emily, this is the most important question that any Christian can deal with. Can we trust the Bible? When I got saved, I'm a really logical person, very practical. And I never even opened a Bible. And so I didn't know how a Bible could be written by God and written by men. It made no sense to me. And I had so many questions. I mean, my life was turned upside down, right side up. And I had questions. And so I would ask Christians, well, what about this? What about this? And they would always answer with these words, the Bible says. And it took me almost no time to realize that, well, if every basis for their claim is the Bible, I better find out if I can trust the Bible. And so I made it my mission in life in life, to find out whether the Bible was really the Word of God or just a book written by men. Now, I didn't know then because I was too immature in the Lord. I didn't know then that if the Bible was not written by God, then we're just like orphans. We have no information, no direction at all. It's like a, a, a an unloving God who would just say, okay, now you're going to heaven, you're on your own. But he's, he left us his word, and his word doesn't change. So you've got to find out if you can trust it. Now, here's what you've got to do, and this is um, uh, critical for everybody listening to this show today. You've got to decide whether or not you're going to believe what it says. And to do that, you've got to find out if it's true. You've got to dig in. And Emily, that means you've got to find out if the Word is written by God or not, and the way you're going to find that out is to study Ask God to show you. And it's real simple. I said, Lord, I need to know who you really are. Some people say you this. Some people say that. And here was my words exactly to him. I said, Jesus, whoever you end up being, if you'll show me who you really are, I will serve you. But I need to know who you are. And I need to know if I can trust your word. And, and I began researching it. Now, Emily, I'm going to give you a couple of places to get started. Um, th- there's some interesting ones. There's two little um, um, paperbacks um, by a man named Paul Little, L-Y-T-T-L-E. And it's, one of them is Know What You Believe. The other is Know Why You Believe. So know what you believe and know why you believe. It, they're not difficult reading. There's another book called The Case for the Bible. Um, written by Lee Strobel. It is also uh, not too difficult to read, but it's wonderful, has great information, and it will set you on a path to find out. Uh, If you want something that's deeper and and more scholarly, uh, Josh McDowell has written Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and and there's a, a, a new version, the new Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and there's an entire section in that very large book about the Bible and how we can know we can trust it. So dig in and find out. And here's what will happen, because this is what happened to me, Emily. If you really dig in, God wants you to believe it. 
So if you really dig in and make the effort to learn whether or not you can trust the Bible, the Holy Spirit will at one point just convince you. I will never forget the day I was at a, a, a the Claremont School of Theology. Uh, it was a, a place near where I lived, and, and they had a, a, a big library and a great study environment. Um, I didn't know liberal versus conservative theology back then, but it turns out it's the most liberal seminary in the United States. And so they had a lot of stuff. They had some good stuff. They had a lot of really bad stuff. And I just needed to learn. And God had me going through books. And at one point, um, I knew it. I knew. And Emily, the value of really knowing is from that moment forward, I've never had one moment's doubt about my salvation. I've never had one moment's doubt about the veracity of the Word of God. And it's then when my life just changed forever. And, of course, now uh, what I do, really the only thing I can do is teach the Bible. And um, uh, he wants us to have that kind of certainty, that kind of clarity. So uh, just dig in and find out. If you want one other book, the New Testament documents, Are They Reliable? By F.F., that's like Frank Frank, F.F. Bruce, um, a little headier and, and more scholarly, uh, but, but there's a lot of information out there. And Emily, once you know for sure, don't change your mind. The enemy will try to trick you. Just, nope, I have decided this is the gospel once for all delivered to the saints. And that will change your life immeasurably. Thank you, Emily, for the question. Here is an anonymous question. Oh, first one. Christmas is coming up, and I want to know what we should tell our kids about Santa Claus. <laughs> our announcer uh, on uh, Sunday this past week at the church, he said, okay, joy of Jesus is over, so now let's move right on to Christmas. And I thought, no, give us a two-week break or something. But we're doing play practice for Christmas for the kids and choir practice for the kids, so we had to do it. Uh, so here's my first Christmas question. Um what you should tell your kids about Santa Claus, let me say this. You should never lie to your children. Not ever. And Santa Claus is a lie. He doesn't exist. Now, I understand the cultural affection for Santa Claus. I understand that we were raised with those traditions. But here's the thing. I don't know how old your children are, but they've got the Internet. They're going to find out sooner or later that you're lying to them. And if they learn that they can't trust what you say, that what you say isn't true, if they learn that, then they're not going to trust you with stuff that's really important. So tell these kids that Santa's not real. Culturally, you can explain what he is and why people embrace him. But then you get the opportunity to say, you know what? The sad thing is that the people believe in Santa Claus. They don't know Jesus. So tell them about Jesus. So I hope that answers your question, Anonymous. It'll be the first one. Here's a question from, this will be our last one, from Calvin in San Antonio. Uh, would you recommend the NIV Bible? Uh, Calvin, I teach out of the NIV. Now, it's very important what I'm about to say now. It's the 1984 version of the NIV. I think it is far and away the best translation of the New Testament. Not necessarily of the Old Testament, but of the New Testament. I also love the King James and the New King James. And, and I've got a Bible study program, like most of you do, that has multiple versions. And it's always good to check out other versions. But the 1984 version of the NIV is the best translation of the New Testament, in my view, uh, of all of them. Now, uh, I have, and, and Pastor Ken Bless his heart. Um, if we find a new version or any of the other electronic Bibles, all they're going to have is a 2011. It's sort of a gender-neutral version of the NIV, and it's horrible. I mean, it's just a terrible translation. But he found me an app. There is an app out there somewhere, and I don't know anything about apps. 
But there is an app out there that is just the 1984 version of the NIV, and we've got that on our electronic devices uh, on my iPad. Paula has it just got it installed today, in fact, on her phone and on her iPad so that we have that that we can always take with us uh, when we're traveling. So I would recommend it heartily. Uh, it's not easy to buy. I think, again, here's my opinion. Uh, I think we all have a paper Bible. It's okay to read your devices. For me, with my vision impairment, um, the, the, the iPad version uh, is the only one I can read. So uh, I'm grateful, but we need to turn pages. So find a 1984 version of the NIV. We have a wonderful woman in the church, uh, so generous. And her mission for the last couple of years has been to try to find, and she loves the process of searching it out, but trying to find 1984 versions of the NIV. And she buys them and just brings them in so we can give them out to people. And um, um, so we know they're out there and they can be bought. What you don't want to do is get caught with the 2011 version. So the 1984 version of the NIV is a wonderful, wonderful translation. Not the only one, but it is a good one for sure. So thank you, Calvin. I appreciate the question and enjoy your 1984 NIV Bible. We're coming to the end of the program here today. Thank you for tuning in. As always, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this has been a program to take your questions as we've done today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, Tomorrow we'll be back as we always are on AM 630 The Word. uh, KSLR, we'll see you then. Have a great evening. spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.